This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is brought to you by Patagonia, makers of high-quality clothing and gear for outdoor sports, world travel, and daily lives lived in harmony with nature. Visit them on the web at patagonia.com. Ryan Oots, and this is his home climbing wall. Or maybe I should say, his home away from home climbing wall. It's early fall, and the summer heat in the desert has finally mellowed enough for Ryan and his close friend, Captain Micah Helser, to climb during daylight hours. They aren't alone. Over the last few months, Ryan and Micah have recruited a group of three or four other men to join them for after work bouldering sessions. Come on, go for it, go for it. Shake the weight off. Warp 2x8s slung between steel I-beams support the 7-foot-tall plywood panels. The guys strain for plastic climbing holds bolted to the wall. They encourage one another. They heckle one another. They're trying a series of desperate gymnastic moves across a roof. And when a hand slips or a foot skates, they fall three or four feet onto stained mattresses. Clouds of chalk billow into the stagnant air. If you're a climber, The scene is probably quite familiar, maybe even mundane. This might as well be your buddy's garage on the north side of town. But for Micah and Ryan, this wall is more than just a way to train or blow off steam after a long day. The wall definitely adds some normalcy. I have have had in the past couple places that I've lived a small wall. And uh, so that kind of makes me feel like I'm at home in that respect, or I have something to connect with home. uh, It's definitely that stress relief and makes you feel like you're still human. It's not always that easy, though. Here's Micah. There's there's definitely moments when you're out there cranking that, you know, your mind might actually escape back to, you know, maybe some real rock or a climb wall back home and... uh, yeah, that's just bliss, but <laughs> I hate to say it, but inevitably there's going to be some kind of diesel truck that drives by or uh, the port of shitter says scoopers are going to be driving by, and, you know, so there's always that stench of either diesel fumes or shit in the air. <laughs> burning trash. <laughs> or burning trash, yes. Yeah, Lots so, of burning trash. Uh, <clears throat> those things, uh, coupled with the extreme stupid heat uh, tend to snap you back to reality where you're at pretty quickly. This is Camp Taji, and this is the world's most improbable climbing wall. Welcome to Iraq. Today, we bring you the tale of two friends, both climbers, both soldiers, and their quest to create a lifeline back from the front lines to the things that matter the most friends, family, and that freedom found only in open spaces. Stories from Ryan Utz and Micah Helser. I'm Fitzgo Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. I reach beneath the skin of the street with each step, walking closer to my final destination of death. When I'm laying the rest, I'm only saving my breath. The northwest fills the lungs, kills the pain in my chest. Take six quarters out of the pocket and drop it in the box. Hop the 48 off to pay homage. It stops off and I jot my observations watching citizens walking off in a joke. 28 combat dead in November. Compare that to one Located 20 miles north of Baghdad, in the heart of the Sunni Triangle, and at the very center of the Iraq War, Camp Taji is home to several thousand American and Iraqi troops. 
In the 1980s, this base actually housed Saddam's chemical warfare program, and now it's become a favorite target of insurgents who routinely lob mortar rounds onto the airfields and command centers. For soldiers looking to unwind in their off-duty hours, there's not a lot to do here. A lot of the men have formed volleyball leagues. Some have started a makeshift espresso stand called the Mud Hut. But this forward operating base is certainly not an oasis of recreation. Even if the soldiers were allowed to, leaving Camp Taji's fences to take an afternoon jog or shop in the local market would be borderline suicidal. Here's Ryan again. You know, you, you realize that when you're home, you take for granted the fact that you can hop in your car or walk down the block to the local, uh, you know, restaurant or store or park or, you know, anything. I mean, it's, it's it literally almost like being in prison because we're stuck on this little base. I mean, we have the benefit of getting outside the wire, but, you know, it's not like you get to go walking around and shopping in the local street or anything like that you know we're we're really in prison here we're we're stuck between these fences for the first half of his 14-month deployment ryan was part of the delta company a maintenance group in charge of working on aircraft but in the middle of the winter an opportunity appeared charlie company the medevac group needed crew chiefs and ryan jumped at the opportunity to begin flying missions he transferred over as a medevac pilot michael was already a member of the charlie company and just basically to roam the halls one day, and I noticed uh, you know this kind of strange face that I wasn't familiar with, and uh, I don't. I think we probably went for probably a week or two without even acknowledging each other. Uh, then finally one day I saw him sitting down reading a book on uh, sustainable building practices, which we're both actually really into. Immediately they struck up a conversation. Ryan asked me, "Well, you know, you're from Oregon. Uh, any chance you've ever been to Smith Rock?" It's like, well, heck yeah, you know, all the time. Uh, it's pretty much grew up there, you know. The two men had more than just climbing in common. They quickly became close friends and started flying with one another. Together, they shepherded the wounded and dying from the battlefield to the ER. Michael piloted the Sikorsky UH-60A Blackhawk. As crew chief, Ryan made sure the helicopter stayed in the air. Mentally, it's not an easy job. Every time their mission phone rings, something terrible has happened. And in the last year of their deployment, during which the violence in Iraq reached a crescendo, the phone rang a lot, typically two or three times a day. Every time we get a mission, we know someone's hurt. And uh, we, you know, that's somewhat unfortunate. We really don't look forward to that. However, we do understand that we're in a place uh, that it's going to happen. And uh, one thing I'm proud about is just being in that position to help others and uh, basically saving lives and not taking lives. Typically, they worked 14-hour shifts, but sometimes they were on call around the clock for weeks at a time. I know, when the phone rings, the mission phone rings, and you have to jump up from whatever you're doing and run to find out where you have to fly to and what the nature of the, the patient is, it's, uh, you know, I get a pretty good case of anxiety. Oh, yeah, yeah, right at first, and you know, and we grab our gear and run out to the aircraft and fire it up and fly off to wherever we have to go. But uh, for the first minute or two, I, I, it's kind of stressful. And the missions didn't always go smoothly. The Blackhawks take constant small arms fire. Some days it was even worse than that. We've seen and been through some pretty crazy things. Uh, one time we were flying out of the uh, hospital's landing pad uh, 
and a bunch of mortar rounds started exploding down all around us. And it, it literally was like something out of a movie. I mean, they were just blowing up yeah. all around us. It was absolutely insane. Yeah. It was, it, like, like Ryan said, it was like out of a movie. I mean, we were just literally just dodging these dust and shrapnel clouds that <laughs> came down. And yeah, that, that day sucked. Probably the hardest ones are kids. Uh, seeing just you know the young kids around Iraq who you know have so much innocence and they get caught up in this uh, in this stuff. And both Micah and Ryan are fathers. While they both felt pride in the work that they were doing, the emotions certainly weren't easy to process. Shortly after they became friends, Ryan had an idea. He wanted to do more than just talk about climbing. He wanted to climb. So shortly after that, you know, that's when Ryan actually came up with the idea to actually make the climbing wall. Uh, I, at, to be honest with you, at first I thought it was pretty harebrained. I thought it was cool, but <laughs> I didn't think it would happen. So if you were back in the States and you decided to put up a small climbing wall in your basement or your garage, it would be a fairly straightforward process. But it'd also be time-consuming. You'd need a series of plywood panels, two by fours for the frame, a good cordless drill, about a hundred plastic climbing holds, T-nuts to attach the holds to the wall, and a couple of drill bits. You could pretty much run down to your local hardware store to get anything you needed. But building a climbing wall in Camp Daji would be different. First off, they needed to find a proposed site. Second, they needed the blessing of the commanding officer. Nothing happens without his permission. Right outside of the building, there's kind of like this this covered area. Um, and it's just basically metal poles with uh, tin roofing on it. Just a really kind of shoddy Iraqi construction job. Um, our, our commander, who, you know, was pretty much the ultimate approval authority for it, was really cool about it. I mean, he was basically anybody who wanted to do something kind of for, you know, recreation purposes around there, he was, he was all for. Their commander even had concrete barriers placed around the flimsy structure for protection against incoming mortar rounds. Now it was a matter of finding building materials. They ordered holds from the states and set off around camp to scrape together whatever they could. Uh, the real jackpot was when we uh, luckily got one of our guys in the unit. Uh, he had a bunch of plywood stocked away from that we actually brought from Colorado that we were going to use for other construction projects. And, and then uh, we just kind of set off around post on uh, one of the little gators there and uh, found just various, you know, you know, bits and pieces of lumber. For screws and nails, they turned to an Iraqi national who ran a small business procuring supplies to troops confined to the base. And it was just ridiculously overpriced. I'm talking like, you know, a little box, 200 screws for like, you know, 15 bucks. It was a huge racket. They began building. They worked after shifts and through the 110 degree heat of the day. They borrowed saws, they borrowed drills, they did everything they could. And for the last piece of the puzzle, they needed T-nuts. Not always an easy thing to find back in the States, 
and would be pretty damn hard to find it in Iraq. So they turned to the almighty power of the Internet. And we ended up warding off of eBay, which was a pretty good deal. By late spring, everything was ready to go. We had just gotten in uh, the T-nuts for the, the climbing wall after waiting probably a month. Uh, you know, they were sent over here, but the package was destroyed, and customs sent them back to the United States, and so that then it was resent back over here. And that was really the, the finishing thing we were waiting for on the climbing wall. And we had just got them, and I was literally cutting the packaging opening to get to them. And uh, that's, of course, when we heard the... Uh, the incoming mortar rounds. Mortar fire is a part of life at Camp Taji. Early in the deployment, a rock attack had wounded several men in Charlie Company. Now, the radio crackled to life. Instantly, Micah began hearing a name of one of the company's crew chiefs. He ran out onto the tarmac. The company's helicopters had been hit, and Ryan was already out there, attending to their friend. Yeah, that was the hardest thing I've ever seen in my life, and... I don't know that I'll ever see anything is, I don't know. I hesitate to use the word traumatizing, but I mean, that really sums it up. That, uh, you know, seeing a buddy of yours that you were standing next to five minutes before, you know, laying there on the ground, you know, in, in that kind of condition. And, uh, you know, just, just by looking at him, you know that he's probably not going to make it. That, I mean, yeah, that's pretty tough. Yeah. Micah and his commanding officer fired up one of the undamaged Blackhawks. The company loaded their friend into the helicopter. I know I had to. I was on duty that day, and I had to fly into the hospital, and uh, that was really tough. It was uh, that aircraft, you know, usually goes pretty fast, but that day it couldn't go fast enough. The, the day that we lost uh, that one soldier was, I think, both Ryan and I, probably the hardest, uh, hardest thing we've gone through. Um, I actually remember, again, going from a lot of happiness to the extreme sadness in the blink of an eye. Nothing in the world could, that will ever give her the grief that goes with losing a friend. Um, but I know in the the days following, we did a lot of climbing, uh, and really that's our stress relief. While the plywood wall bared only the slightest resemblance to real stone, it became a lifeline back to the things they cared about the most, family, friends, and the freedom only found in wild places. As the spring gave way to summer, Ryan and Micah began recruiting fellow soldiers. And we got quite a few guys out to climb with us. A couple of them had climbed before, and... Uh... A couple were brand new, and you know it's always fun. That's one of the things I love most about climbing is exposing it to other people and getting other people into it, and you know seeing them get hooked, like you know everybody inevitably does. At least a couple of those guys are gonna continue climbing. Absolutely. There weren't always enough climbing shoes to go around, but the climbing wall quickly became a gathering place for the crew of devoted climbers. They created a series of problems, designated handholds with medical tape. In the midst of war, 
it became a way to have fun. After any, you know, stressful day, it's um, usually definitely a good indicator if, if we're going to be out there on the wall or not. But uh, it, it's just great, you know, like, like any climber. You go out there, you're, you're hanging with your buddies, and, you know, climbing alone, just, you know, I tried it a few times out there, and it's just, it's not the same as when your friends are out there supporting you, heckling you. Uh, Cheering you on. Yeah, setting up routes, pushing you to the next limit. That's, uh, I think that's really what the essence of climbing is all about. It's about being in that moment, uh, being among nature, uh, the rock, friends, and, uh, just sharing just an incredible, incredible passion together. Seven guys total in the company, uh, just a couple weeks after we got here, almost a year ago, uh, were hit by another rocket on the, the airfield. And in fact, one of them, Linder, um, he was sent back home, uh, came back after about six months, and he ended up being climbing with us. And he's an awesome climber. It was a really great job out there. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing considering he's missing half of one yeah. of his calf muscles. <laughs> we always kind of give him crap that he's cheating because uh, he, he definitely weighs a lot less than we do. <laughs> it continually throughout the summer got up to 110, 120 degrees. And uh, the low was usually, what, 195, yeah. something like that, and pretty incredibly hot. It really cooled down if it got down to double digits during the nighttime, usually it's, you know, above 100. Yeah, and it's ridiculous trying to get your shoes to stick on that yeah. stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, you're, it's like wearing ice skates when it's <laughs> that hot. The guys juggled schedules to get the night shift so that they could climb in the relative cool of the morning. Sometimes they climbed by headlamp in the middle of the night. Even in the brutal heat, it was never hard to find the energy for a bouldering session. As far as staying motivated, that, that's never a problem. I mean, you know, it's, it's definitely been our release out here. So doing the one thing out here that you actually like doing isn't too hard to stay motivated to do. There was solace in those hours spent at the climbing wall. For an hour or two, the regulations, guidelines, chain of command, these things didn't really seem to apply here. It was just a couple of guys bouldering. But uh, that's the greatest part about it is there are no rules. Just uh, freedom uh, until you at least run out of plywood. In one of our conversations, Mike told me that Iraq could be a beautiful place. Sometimes, coming back from missions at sunset, Micah and Ryan would fly low above the banks of the Tigris River, above fields and orchards. And below, in the fading light, Iraqis would gather and play soccer. No matter what had happened that day, whether there had been a bombing, an airstrike, or a kidnapping, everyone returned from work to rally pickup games. They'd play until they could no longer see the ball. It's a part of what makes Iraq's people Iraqi. It's a part of their cultural identity. For Micah, there was something so important, so human in those soccer games. Something that wasn't easy to put words to. Really, I mean, they're they're out there in you know in, in the country where they love, and uh, just doing some, playing soccer, uh, having a fun time. Uh, 
um, it kind of makes you almost kind of want to be down there with them. Mike also told me this. Before they built the wall, it felt like he, Ryan, and the other soldiers were missing something. He'd see it in those fields, in those orchards, alive with the shouts and laughter of men. Seeing the Iraqis gathered together to play soccer had always made him miss his own home, his own community, and his family back in the States. While their small climbing wall didn't fill that longing, it somehow made it easier to deal with. There's really no other, you know, piece of material or object out there that could really substitute that at all. With discarded wood, overpriced nails, and a shared passion for the outdoors, Micah and Ryan built themselves a tiny little community. They had created something good. Okay, so it is about 2100 at night, 18th of October 2007. Here we are out at the climbing wall, Camp Taji, Iraq. With me, myself, Micah Helser, we have Ryan Oots, Eddie Bear, and Brian Makepeace, the climbing team extraordinaire that have been out with us for a while. This is most likely going to be our final uh, climb uh, before we all redeploy back home. So we're all just down here, probably for the first time in about two weeks. Uh, Ryan in the mail just got a shipment of new holds in from Soil. We're probably going to put them up just to take them right back down, unfortunately. But uh, other than that, we're all just getting ready. Eddie just got some brand new shoes in, which uh, look pretty spiffy. I have to say they're pretty damn sexy since uh, they're the same shoes of mine. Yeah, it only took two and a half months for me to get here. Yeah, only took two and a half months to get there. That's uh, the military mail system for you. And of course, uh, Brian Makepeace here, he, uh, he doesn't have shoes on at all. He, but he's pretty stoked because the, the mattresses out here are extra dirty, so they're actually chalking his feet. But uh, other than that, we're just getting ready to crank. In the coming weeks, the wall will come down. Michael will return to Colorado Springs to his two-year-old daughter, Natalie, and his wife, Katie, who's expecting the couple's second child any time now. Ryan will return back to working in the Delta Company's garage for the remaining six weeks of his deployment. They're already looking ahead to Christmas, when Ryan and his teenage son and his wife, Amy, will join the Helsers in Colorado Springs. And of course, there's going to be some climbing. While their time in Iraq has been difficult, both Ryan and Micah feel that the last 14 months has helped put life at home in perspective, made things clearer, put an emphasis on family, and strengthened their bond to the natural world. In the coming years, there will be vows to be kept, families to love, children to raise, routes to climb. There will be many things to say and do. But right now, there's business to take care of. There's a new batch of holds to put up on the wall. There's new problems to create, new problems to fall off of, new routes to send. All right, get a mic up. <gasps> nice. Come on, ah! sir. Nice. Hard, hard. And if all goes well tonight, the mission phone will remain quiet and securely in the cradle. The diesel delivery trucks will take another route and a breeze might carry the smell of burning trash to the south. For a few minutes, the shoddily built hangar in the center of Camp Taji will be no different from a cramped garage on the north side of town. 
for a moment just might feel like home. I reach beneath the skin of the street with each step Walking closer to my final destination of death When I'm laying the rest, I'm only saving my breath The northwest fills the lungs, heals the pain in my chest Take six quarters out of the pocket and drop it in the box Hop the 48 So the majority of this episode was recorded two months ago So I've got some quick updates As Micah and Ryan were packing up the wall Members of the unit scheduled to replace Charlie Company Expressed interest in keeping the wall up It still stands today as this episode releases, Ryan is in the final days of his deployment. He may even be home, back in Kansas. Mike and Katie, well, they're waiting to find out whether the newest member of the Helser family will be a boy or a girl. It should be any day now. I've got some thank yous today. First off, I need to thank Ashley Oots and Katie Hessler. They made this story possible. Ashley made sure the guys had a recorder and my questions. Katie's heartfelt essay was what originally piqued my interest. Second, I want to thank Micah and Ryan for their candidness and laughter. The majority of what you heard was recorded in Iraq. And if you've ever sat in an empty space and tried to interview yourself, you know it's not easy. I'm also pleased to announce that there will be more Dirtbag Diaries. Patagonia has renewed their support. You are the man, Casey. All right. Enough thank yous. It's starting to sound like I'm at the Academy Awards or something. Today's music was provided by Iota Promenade. Cut today by Blue Scholars, whose newest album was one of my favorites of 2007. We also featured Darun, Tanarwin, and Carly Commando. For more information and links to the artist's music, check out our website at dirtbagdiaries.com. Alright, it's the holidays, people. It's time to shop. Rumors has it the Dirtbag Diaries may be making an appearance on Patagonia's main website, patagonia.com. At long last, you will be able to listen to my dulcet tones as you peruse their fine selection of environmental if you've got questions or story suggestions, drop us a line at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. And ladies, where have you been with the radical story suggestions? I know, I know, you're probably too busy and too cool kicking ass and taking names to even listen to this podcast. But take a breath from whatever skin track or route you're blazing up, compose your thoughts, and send me some killer stories. Okay, for real now, let's get out of here. Call in sick, lie to the boss, do whatever it takes to get out this holiday season. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Now we headed downtown to trade a labor for cash. I thanked the navigator once and walked fast. I walked past the next round of cats to jump on it. Locked in deep thought, we ride around in silence across Resolve Bridge. I watch each step, walking closer to my final destination of death.